You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Another deal in the energy space, this time Chesapeake Energy, going to buy Southwestern Energy for $7.4 billion in an all-stock uh, deal. So, I mean, crazy, which means we get the opportunity to speak to our good friend Vince Piazza, senior industry analyst, uh, covering all the energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence. And of course, the highlight of his career, former sportscaster, talk show host at the famed WFUV radio station at Fordham U- University, which has launched so many legendary broadcasting careers, particularly in the sports biz. Vince, uh, we'll talk radio at another time. Let's talk about this deal here. What's going on in your business here? It is the consolidation is fast and furious, isn't it? It really is. And we talked about this uh, in our outlook for uh, 2024. Uh, The consolidation continues. You know, we have reached a maturity phase in this industry. Uh, We had the shakeout and now you have established players looking for increased scale and concentration. You're selling a commodity. There's little differentiation. Uh, the only way you can differentiate is by having more of it so that you can gain efficiencies, economies of scale, better productivity. And this is a prime example, Paul, right? So you have two very large players getting together to form the third largest natural gas producer behind Chevron and Exxon. So this is a globally relevant producer that will have access via its um, exposure to the Haynesville shale to Gulf Coast markets, uh, seaborne markets, and being able to push those flows out there in the international marketplace, which allows for greater diversification of selling hubs. You know, they're going to be exposed roughly 20, 25% to that seaborne market. They're going to have um, uh, various selling hubs that they can push product through, um, something like over two dozen. So the deal makes sense on paper. What I I don't think most folks are really focusing on, and um, I invite you all to touch base with uh, Jennifer She's our antitrust specialist. This deal will get lots of scrutiny, I think. Uh, That's uh, a, <laughs> a deal like EQT buying up quantum assets for about four and a half billion. 
That deal took about a year to close. So this is a much larger deal. It's much more concentrated in two very important specific plays. And so I think that's going to get a lot more scrutiny. Um, So this isn't a done deal, but on paper, it is a very rational approach to a commoditized marketplace. Yeah, you read my mind, Vince, because I was going to ask you, what does the FTC think on these, you know, large, large gas and uh, and oil deals? Um, I got to talk about this whole trend of consolidation. Are we going to see this continue into 2024? I mean, is this going to be a big part of, of all these companies gaining scale? Yeah, as part of our outlook, we looked at um, gas in general relative to oil, and we have we have had all of these deals in the Permian, but gas deals have been rather quiet in 2023, and that's because of the way the benchmarks um, performed in 2023. We think that NAT gas, the worst is uh, worst is past NAT gas. Uh, we could see better improvement uh, in tighter markets for 2024. We think the market tightness will show itself in the second half. So we think we will have more consolidation in the natural gas space. This will likely set things off. How EQT responds, which was the largest producer, uh, still is the largest producer uh, until this deal closes, how they respond will be very important. Um, Antero and CNX have been relatively absent from the M&A game. How they respond will be very important as well. Um, So it will likely set off a mini wave of decisions that many of these operators will have to make in order to gain that scale. The scale and concentration is very important when you're selling a commoditized asset. So, Vince, I see the, the stock of Chesapeake Energy is actually up about 6%. Um, you don't often or always see that when you acquirer makes a, a deal here because there might be some dilution concerns. Why do you think this stock is up here? Is this a, a good, good valuation aside from the strategic uh, side to it? I think it's uh, exclusively about the strategic rationale okay. behind the deal. Um, and when you think about uh, the 2025 strip, um, things should look better for natural gas, natural gas market, natural gas sentiment in general. So uh, I think it's a vote of confidence uh, about the deal. Um, and I think it's a vote of confidence for NACAS going forward. You want to have more assets in concentrated hands and more solid hands. How, how fragmented, Vince, is does this, enter, does this natural gas and still remain today. Are there private players out there that can be rolled up or are we looking at a handful of public companies that just have to figure out who's going to go with who? Yeah. So if you think about where Chesapeake came from and where Southwestern came from, even EQT, uh, you saw public buying private as the PE firms monetize their legacy investments to regenerate that capital. Um, What we're going to see now, I think, is still a good amount of public buying private, but I think now we're going to see public on public mergers, mergers of equals, uh, low premium uh, consolidation as well. Because I, I, I think the next step is investors still want to see free cash flow. They want to see the return of excess cash. We had all this investment in the space during shale 1.0, where a lot of capital was sunk in the ground to prove up the assets. We now have these assets proved up. It is a manufacturing process now. And now we've hit the point of maturity where there's not a lot of growth capital. So it's really sucking out that excess cash, growing at a more modest pace, 
controlling your expenses because you have that scale, because you have that concentration, and generating that free cash flow that right now in general is in the high to high a single digits to low teens for the industry and giving back that capital to the investor base. Hey, Debt is not really an issue, and a lot of the maturities have been pushed out. So leverage isn't really a concern. Hey, Vince, before you go, I, I have to ask, uh, APA's Calon purchase. Uh, I read your article. You said it's not all it's cracked up to be. Yeah, so it's interesting because usually when you consolidate you and you consolidate for scale, you are buying up near acreage or near assets. In this case, the assets seem to be somewhat diffuse from where APA um, uh, is historically located. So I think this that deal was done um, to generate cash flow as a cash flow bridge for APA uh, to get past this um, this period of uncertainty when their longer term, their longer cycle assets come online. Hey, Vince, uh, always good to talk to you. Lots of deal flow in your space. We appreciate you giving us some time here as we try to piece it all together. Vince Piazza, he's a senior energy analyst uh, at Bloomberg uh, Intelligence. Uh, another deal in the natural gas space, the shale space. So we stay on top of it. The good analysts, the research analysts go and keep on top of it as well. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. James Safer joins us here, uh, and this is the guy to speak to. He, along with Eric Balchunas at Bloomberg Intelligence, the leading research on ETFs, period, uh, for as long as we've been doing this at Bloomberg Intelligence, these are the folks that really are on top of it. And they've been on top of this uh, Bitcoin ETF because it's such a big deal in the world of ETFs. James, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're super busy here today. When we have 11 new Bitcoin ETFs hit the market, I don't know what to look at. 
which ones should I look at? Which ones are important? What are you guys looking at? So I'm looking at all of them. Okay. So I want to see how all of them are doing. Um, the thing is, well, everyone's going to try to figure out what happened with flows, right? Problem is, we don't know what's happening with flows right now. I'm sure there's some trading desks and the authorized participants in the banks at these brokerages. They know what's happening with flows, but we won't see it till after market close today. That said, what we can watch is volume, and that's what I'm watching. We're right around $2 billion already in traded in all 11 of these ETFs. It's being led by GBTC um, from Grayscale and then IBIT from BlackRock and then you have Fidelity and ARK are following suit. Now, I think there's no, like I said, there's no way to know which what, which way the flows are going in this volume. It's significant. This is a huge launch, but I have my guesses. And the guess is, we'll, we'll pay you for the guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm fairly confident that of this money, GBTC, they are trading with the tightest spread too. That's something else I'm watching, trying to see who's trading the tightest on that bid-ass spread. GBTC is trading very tight. So we're most of these other ones. There's no there's no one really trading out of line, but I think GBTC is seeing significant outflows. I've called for GBTC to see outflows in my research because they left their fee at 1.5%. All these other guys are at uh. zero. So there's significant capital in there. It might be locked up with cap gains, but there's a lot of it that's gonna be leaving because they don't want to be paying that fee anymore. So how much money are these 11 likely to generate? How much money? Generate as in flows or yeah. generate as in revenue? Revenue. Well, flow, yeah, well, flow. I guess yeah. flows coming into, I mean, like, we don't, yeah, like, I think, are they going to all go out there and start buying Bitcoin kind of thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what's happening, right? Okay. They are going right, to be, right. they're going to be buying Bitcoin. This money that's coming in, it's the question is figuring out how much of it is new money buying Bitcoin versus shifting around like we're seeing likely right now at Grayscale. Mm -hmm. Money's pouring out. As far as how much money's being made, most, the only one making real money right now is Grayscale because they're charging high fee, but they're seeing money pour out. Everyone else, for the most part, most of them are offering zero fee waivers. So it's literally free to hold these things for the next six months. So they're, everyone's doing everything they can to get assets for the long-term play to keep those assets and then earn fees on them. And even the fees over the long-term, they're really low. They're competitive with other ETFs in the US landscape. How big is this for, I mean, you guys, you and Eric and your team, they have a team. I'm like, we have to have a team yes. for ETFs? And they're like, yeah. Yes, we um, do. So we built a team. Um, how big is this Bitcoin thing in the overall scheme of kind of ETFs? So we, we we like to look at this and we like, the, the media tends to cover like 95% of what is in your, um, sorry, let me restart. Yep. The media tends to look at <laughs> stuff, it's 5% of your portfolio, but the media spends 95% yep. of it. And that's what's happening here with Bitcoin, right? Like we think these Bitcoin ETFs could get to something like one to 2% of overall ETF assets four or five years from now, crypto ETFs in general. Um, but that's it. That said, this is really interesting, it's fascinating. There's politics at play, there's a lot of money at play, there's a lot of big names at play. I mean, I just mentioned BlackRock, yeah. iShares, Invesco, yeah. Well, all like, of them. One of the things that we've been talking about, like gold, how many gold ETFs are there? I mean, gold is gold is gold. How do you differentiate one ETF versus another? So how many gold ETFs are there? I don't know the exact number off the top of my head, but it's somewhere around eight or nine. Okay. Uh, so you'd be surprised. And a lot of them, so State Street is the main one, they offer GLD, but BlackRock also one has one IAU. And each of those have a sibling that charges a quarter of what the other one charges. So GLDM, mini shares, and IAUM, also mini shares essentially. And they just undercut themselves because they have enough liquidity in the other products. And then they offer this cheaper portfolio diversifier that people can use and only charge like 10 basis points to hold it. My mind is blown right yes. now. <laughs> so okay. um, so the, the SEC approval, this is not the SEC giving that 
you know, stamp of approval to Bitcoin, correct? Yes, correct. I mean, if you if you read the letters from some of the Democratic commissioners yesterday after they approved this thing and uh, Chairman Gary Gensler, he kind of approved this thing tongue in cheek so the courts were forcing us. But at the end of the day, what they were saying is true. It's the reason why we've been saying the SEC shouldn't have been denying the Bitcoin ETFs in the most recent denials, because the SEC is not a merit reg- regulator. Their job is not to say whether an investment has merit. Their job is to make sure that the proper disclosures are made and let investors decide whether it has merit. So they aren't supposed to be the ones dictating whether there's value here. Let the end investors choose, which is what's happening here and what and why I think it's it's right that these things are now trading. So just to be clear, because uh, Rich Truman, my intrepid producer, pointed out earlier, what did Gary Gensler do from a vote perspective? That Gary Gensler, the chairman of the SEC, did he vote for this, against this? Did he vote for it with like a big asterisk next to it? Or what, what happened? Yeah, I guess the way to think about it, what he's voted with an asterisk. So the way that the SEC is set up is by, it's by a five-member five commission, right? So typically it's two Democrats, two Republicans, and then a chairman. And the person who appoints the chairman is the president. So typically, right now, it's run by the Democrats. Okay. So what happened here is the two Democrats dissent, dissented on this decision, the two Republicans agreed with it and Gary Gensler was the deciding vote that got this pushed through. I think it was all a political move. The Democrats didn't want to have to do this. They didn't really have much of a choice as far as I'm concerned. So by Gary being the deciding vote saying, yeah, I know we have to do this based on the courts and these other things, but we really don't like it. We didn't want to do it. I hate to get into politics when we're talking money, which is my preferred thing to talk about. But why would the Democrats not want this? Yeah, they've. I mean, Elizabeth Warren specifically has said oh, she's please. raising an anti-crypto army. She hates the, the she hates the crypto crowd. I mean, I understand some of it. There's been a lot of fraud, a lot of manipulation, a lot of bad okay. bad actors okay. in this space. So I get why they don't like it, but that's not the entire space. And like I said, the SEC shouldn't be a merit regulator. They shouldn't be deciding whether there's merit in an investment. They should worry well, about the, the SEC risks. was also saying we regulate securities and we don't think this is a security, right? Was that also one of their arguments? Correct. But we have, I mean, gold is not a security either. It's a commodity. So Bitcoin technically is going to be regulated, is regulated by the CFTC, but still the Bitcoin ETFs are regulated by the SEC because ETFs are securities, which brings me to another point. One of the reasons why these are so important is many of these institutions, they can't hold anything but securities or bonds, what have you. Right. This puts them in a wrapper that now institutions, advisors, and more people can can play ah. with Bitcoin. They can't touch the underlying stuff for the most part. All right, so you and Eric are going to come out with some research tonight after the close <laughs> that I have. What are, what are you guys like really tracking? What's going to be? I don't know what. What's your call here? We're ten forty eight a.m. Has this been a good day for for the ETF biz and crypto? It's been an obscenely good day. I mean, okay. we're probably. I mean, okay. I, I I haven't been at my desk for a while looking at the volumes, but I'm guessing we're over two billion in trading volume at this point. I mean, that is a monster day. That's not something you really. That's ever a monster see. day for an ETF, ETF. launch. Yeah, kind of how you're phrasing it. Yes, exactly. It, it, even still, like for a brand new ETF, it's it's exceptionally well. I mean, even if you take GBTC out, which is a yep. trust that was trading over the counter, is now an ETF. These are still having very big trading days. Like if the even if these things were only trading this number two billion for the entire day after we take out Grayscale, I would say that's a successful day. I said if they get over over a billion, over two billion, I think that's a pretty su- successful day. We, we're only uh, <laughs> we're only an hour and change into this day, so <laughs> All right. we'll see how it goes. <laughs> All right, we'll follow your research, folks. Bi go on the terminal for terminal users. Uh, get the research all on the ETF business. Uh, James Seifert, ETF research analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for taking the time, but coming into our, our studio again. Uh, some big ones I'm following: Grayscale, Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, uh, the iShares one, IBIT. That's what I'm looking at. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets weekday 
weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Let's talk about this market here. We're just talking with Jess Met in there, but let's... Uh, Think about kind of where we go in 2024 after that stellar, you know, 10, 11 week run there at the end of 2023. Uh, we got a professional in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, Joe Mazzoli. He's a managing director of trader education at Charles Schwab. Joe, again, that last finish we had there in 2023, I haven't seen anything. I've been doing this a long time. I haven't seen anything like that in a while. What did you guys at Schwab make of that performance? We saw both in the equity markets yeah. and in the fixed income market. You know, for me, there's one word, rotation. Yep. I, I, I think that that was a big change from what we saw basically all of 2023. When you think about the fact that in March of 2023, you had you know, the financial meltdown, if you yep. will, that's when mega cap just really caught a bid, right? Everybody said, we wanna, we wanna move into companies that have high free cash flow. We feel a little bit more comfortable with that. I mean, people are looking at these mega caps as almost like a, I don't wanna say a hedge, but maybe a safe haven. And then as you get towards the end of the year, what happens? You get a, a dovish Fed, if you will. Uh, you get CPI that's come down quite a bit. And then people say, hey, we can, we can feel more comfortable rolling back into maybe some of the uh, sectors that hadn't performed as well. And that's exactly what we saw from our clients. Now, new year, new things that you guys are mm -hmm. launching. I want to get into that Schwab Trading Activity Index. So what exactly does this offer? What data comes out for, for December? Yeah, it's a, it's a cool name, Stacks. Yeah. Right? People yeah. remember that one, <laughs> yeah. Stacks. I like that one. Uh, basically, Stacks is it's a behavioral index, right? So we're looking at kind of what our clients are, are doing, their trading activity in their accounts. So what's interesting is we use like a, you know, we have millions of clients, sure. right? So we look at a sample size and we say, where are the net buys versus what are the net sells? And we use that to come up with a, a medium, a median, excuse me, uh, sample. And that gives us a number, generates a number. So right now for December, we generate a number about 44 and a half. And the range traditionally is around 30 to 70, 35 to 70. So it's actually on the moderately low end, but it is a step up from what we saw in November. And interestingly enough, you know, you, you, you might've thought that given the strength that we saw in December, that would be higher. Uh, but I think when you look at the equities that were bought and that were sold, it makes a, it makes a difference. So we had net buyers, excuse me, we had net buyers, but the equities that were bought were Pfizer, Alibaba, um, really? Okay. NVIDIA and the ones that were sold, you know, these were the ones that were a little bit that had already moved up your apples, uh, your metas, you know, the, these are and, and even uh, Tesla. So there was a rotation. And like I said, the rotation that we saw within our clients kind of mimicked what you saw in the overall market. So what are you telling your clients these days? I mean, is it, you know, Tom Keen has a nice uh, expression, the courage to be in the markets. Yeah. What are you seeing from your retail clients? Are they in the market? Do you feel like they're fully invested their cash i hear another thing i hear about is there six trillion dollars of cash yeah. on the sidelines what are you seeing at, at, at your place well right? you know we you know the old saying right time in the market versus timing the market yep that's hard for me because i'm a trader right, right. And, and and for me you know I, I like to look at different indicators and that's kind of how i look at the stacks right if you're if you're a, a short-term trader or you know a day trader stacks probably doesn't help you a lot by looking at sentiment but if you're an investor 
and you think about what are all the tools that I have in my toolbox, right? You got your fundamental analysis, you got your technical analysis. Well, now you have that sentiment analysis mm -hmm. that helps. Okay. So, you know, what we're, what we're telling clients right now is, uh, you know, be patient. We, I think we expect some volatility throughout the year. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, um, you know, in the, in the fixed income market, in five or six cuts we don't see that many we see about three to four so as you get closer to that march date what's going to happen if it doesn't look like the fed's going to cut does that start to creep volatility back into the fixed income market mm -hmm. which you saw last year yep. in turn you know created equity volatility as well Joe, I got to touch on CPI um, that came out. Uh, do you think from the from the figures that came out from it? I mean, is that showing that it's going to take a little bit longer for these rate cuts yeah. to happen? Yeah. And and, how and, long? Yeah. Well, I mean, in my opinion, think about it this way. I don't think anybody ever thought that it was going to be a straight line down, right? The straight line down to 2%. It's a bumpy road, but we've made a lot of progress. I think um, instead of, you know, we're not talking deflation, we're talking disinflation, but it's going to take some time. I noticed that uh, on the Fed watch tool, you know, you went from about a 65% chance of a cut in March down to 59% or 60%. You're still pricing in a lot of cuts. Uh, and I just, I just don't know if you're gonna get that. Maybe you get that in March, but I think that the Fed's probably gonna say, if we make this cut in March, let's play wait and see, and let's see what happens from there. So the story today, uh, Joe, for us here at Bloomberg Radio and TV is these Bitcoin ETFs. Yeah. Uh, so now there's 11 ETFs that if people want to get exposure to, I'm going to call it this asset class. I'm not sure what Gary Gensel would agree. <laughs> um, but and ETFs have been such a growth story. I mean, I, nobody knows it better than the, the good folks at, at Schwab. How does what, what are your clients? How do you think they're going to react to this opportunity, this investment opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think there'll be demand. Uh, I do. I think there'll be demand for the ETF, especially when you think about client accounts, right? If you want to trade futures, you have to have a certain level yep. of, um, you know, we call it level three, right? That gives you permission to trade futures. So if you have the ability to do that through an ETF, it opens up a lot more possibilities for IRA accounts, you know, for, for clients uh, who don't have margin trading ability. So I think there will be demand there. What I also question um, is also, you know, where does Bitcoin fit within an investment portfolio? Right. I think this idea that in 22 and 23, it was meant to be, you know, a hedge or it was meant to be an alternative asset. I mean, basically what it did was it became a levered asset of the NASDAQ, right? So I don't know exactly where mm. it fits, but, uh, you know, that's up to the clients to decide. So speaking of where things fit, I mean, so we talk about CPI, we talk about Bitcoin, we can't forget jobless claims came out mm, today, lower yeah. than expected. So where does the labor market fit into the picture? Well, it's interesting because even though you got a good print on last Friday for uh, non-farm payrolls, even though you got uh, jobless claims below, look at the revisions. Yeah, The revisions are actually moving in the wrong direction. So I think that's something to kind of keep an eye on. You know, you can look at that headline flash number and it, and it, it paints a rosy picture, but when you look at the revisions and when you look at kind of the, uh, the, the, we don't look at just that number, we look at the momentum and we look at, you know, what's happening over the last six months or so. You're starting to see the jolts numbers come down, right? Job openings are less. Uh, even, and even though you're getting jobless claims that are better than expected, it's still moving in a different direction. One thing I would keep an eye on, I'd absolutely watch this, is the, you know, the low, the low tick that we saw in unemployment was 3.4%. If it gets to 3.9%, when you get that, that, that half a percent move, that's that, that, that trough to peak or peak to trough, whoever, however you want to look at it, that's an indicator that maybe things aren't as rosy as we believe. How about volatility, real quick? I got the VIX here at 13. Yeah. Are you surprised by the low vol? Shocked. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because 
with everything that we've seen um, in the market in, in 23 and heading into 24, uh, I would think, you know, given tomorrow, you know, being kind of the big day for the bank earnings, yep. you, would have, you would have seen a lot more hedging in some of those names or even in the XLF. Well, one of the things that I'm looking at right now is that XLF is trading at an implied volatility in like the 10th percentile, right. uh, meaning 90% of the time it trades at a higher vol. There's just uh, not a lot of hedgers stepping into the market. Could that have something to do with the zero DTE options? It's, it's a possibility, yeah. Yeah, interesting. All right, I gotta ask you, Lone Tree, Colorado, are you based in Lone Tree, Colorado? Uh, no, I'm a Bay Area guy. You're a Bay Area guy. I'm a Bay Area okay. guy. I live in Danville, California. Okay, because I looked at it, it's just on the bio. Did they, there's a Schwab Way in Lone Tree, Colorado? There's a Schwab Way, yeah. So did they, did Schwab relocate some people from the Bay Area to Denver area? Uh, so there, there's a big group in Denver, there's a big group down in Fort Worth. Um, and yet, you know, we still have our office in San Francisco. That uh, how's San Francisco there. these days? San Francisco, San Francisco. You know, you're just not getting a lot of people come downtown anymore. It's, it's right. a little sad. Yeah, it's I mean, it's just you know, when people still a beautiful city. You know, it's a great city, and I'm I'm thinking at some point, man, it's going to turn. I yeah. I, just, I don't know when that it's going to be, but I know there's a lot of issues there. But I always tell my friends that are coming in from overseas, you know, we're gonna come in for, with the family for four or five weeks to see US. I say, okay, you can go to New York, you can go to Vegas, you can go to Miami, whatever. Yeah. Have to go to San Francisco. Yeah, I agree. And I have agree. to go to the Bay Area. Yeah. Uh, I still think that's the case, but it's amazing what happened there. I mean, so the commercial real estate, like we have issues here in New York City, but there's a lot of oh, other stuff. To, to, in comparison. Yeah. So, yeah, but if pales. you're in the Bay Area, downtown, it's pretty dead, right? It's pretty dead, and it also depends upon what time you go down there, right? I'm okay. working market hours. I'm yep. getting in at 4.35 in the morning. It's a different sight than uh, maybe, you know, <laughs> 7 or 8 o'clock uh, when everybody else is getting in. So it looks a little bit different. Um, you know, I have hopes. I have yep. hopes for the Bay Area. Uh, you know, like I said, I live out there. It's it's beautiful area. It's just, yep. uh, it needs, it, it needs uh, we need an influx of people. Problem guys, is, people are leaving California. Yeah, exactly. Well, you're going to dump a snow up in Tahoe, so yeah. um, I'm sure you'll be heading up there. All right, Joe Mazzol, thanks so much thanks, uh, for joining us here. Joe Mazzol is the Managing Director of Trader Education at Charles Schwab. Uh, they've got uh, the Schwab Trading Activity Index, Stacks. It's launching this week, and Schwab clients can access it under uh, Stacks on the Think or Swap women platform how cool is that you know it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through invisible struggles like stress and burnout caregiving for a loved one or being misunderstood but insight awareness and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with and that can make us and our companies healthier too i'm holly robinson pete join us on the visibility gap a new podcast presented by cigna healthcare download it wherever you get your podcasts you know success when you see it or you think you do the people in the spotlight athletes actors artists but what about the people behind the scenes you know the ones who make it all happen the lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers, they're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. 
You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm an equity analyst, so I'm very optimistic, and I think the stock's always going up and that kind of thing. But I make a big exception to that with our next guest, Jody Lurie. She's a credit analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence. She writes great research, good stuff, cool sectors she covers, uh, and we're glad to get a few minutes of her time. Hey, Jody, Hertz. I, I did not see this coming. Um, they say they're going to sell 20,000 EVs in a shift back to gas-powered cars. What's going on there? What's it mean for the credit? I'm so glad that you like me as an exception <laughs> to credit analysts. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, Hertz is a name. Speaking of like, dislike, I think I feel like Hertz is a name that people either love or love to hate. And so it really just depends on which side of the coin you're on. That said, it's sort of an interesting scenario. So you have a relatively new CEO who came in. They take a big stance of we're going to buy a ton of electric vehicles to outfit our fleet. We're going to invest in charging stations. We're going to make, you know, the, the rental car system work for EV. And, you know, they had very aggressive sort of plans with that and hummed along. And then third quarter happened and they said, well, actually, the damage and collision related to EV isn't as efficient as your traditional internal combustion engine cars. And so now they're backpedaling and they're saying, all right, we're going to sell off a third of our fleet, a global fleet. Um, they didn't necessarily say from where, but we're going to sell it off over the next year. And we are going to take that money and put a portion of it into internal combustion engines. So it is a little bit of a backtrack, kind of an interesting scenario, to say the least. Not necessarily something that that gives as much confidence from a bond perspective. Now, they're talking about because of elevated costs, that's a reading, but dig into to some of those costs and, and what are we talking about? Sure. So they, they talked a little bit about it on the third quarter call, and then they mentioned it a little bit in their press release today that the damage and collision is a little bit higher than they expected. And so it's eating into EBITDA and cash flows. And so to benefit from the cash flow generation that they're seeing because guess what used car prices are still in general relatively high as compared to what they were a few years ago they aren't getting that same value when it comes to ev right and i and i think part of that speaks to the fact that the ev market is so much younger we don't really know how to model out depreciation the same way that we do for cars that have been around for 50 60 years and so I think that's really what it comes down to is that they have this element of growing pains as a result of the fact that it's still a relatively new industry. They took a bold stance related to it. And something that we like to highlight, both Hertz and Avis have been doing this over the past few years, more a function of, of their counterparties than, than necessarily them. But they've taken on more what you call risk vehicles as opposed to program vehicles. What risk vehicles are is the companies go and buy vehicles and take the risk of selling them in the aftermarket as compared to program vehicles where they work with a GM, a Ford, you name it, they buy a certain amount of vehicles and then they have a, a commitment to basically put those vehicles back at a, at a declared price. And so you don't have that put element as much for their fleet as they used to have. We've seen that sort of erode over time for both companies. So what's it mean for the the credit here? I mean, I'm looking. I don't. I'm looking at the FA function. I quite frankly, the data is a little wacky. I'm not sure. Kind of give us a sense of where the <laughs> leverage is, um, 
and kind of you know kind of what the forecast is. What do the credit folks think about uh, Hertz Credit? Sure. So leverage is actually relatively low if you look at it as a company leverage or a corporate leverage standpoint. You have to, when you look at these companies, it's it's sort of complicated because they have their vehicles, which are financed with asset-backed securities, right? And then you have the corporate leverage, which is financing other operations and other elements of the business. And so Hertz's leverage is relatively low, much lower than it was historically. It's below two times, but it has been creeping up each quarter. And so, you know, they come out of bankruptcy, they wipe the slate clean, they have a nice balance sheet, and they tap the debt markets, they started to give back to shareholders. And they did all this all the while that the used car market was particularly good. And they had all these tremendous tailwinds. Now, used car prices have been going down, not to levels what they were in you know 2020 or earlier, but they have been going down. And those tailwinds that they benefited from in 2022, where they have record EBITDA levels, it's sort of eroding. And so we don't necessarily see you know, the top line activity. So the revenue element, the act, the the consumer piece of rental cars being negative, we actually see that as a relatively big tailwind this year, particularly as there's more business travel. At the same time, it's these sort of functions related to outfitting your fleet, getting rid of your fleet, rotating your fleet. That's always the piece that that can bring some troubles. Now, I want to take this to the, Paul, you're, you're a travel guy and sure. you're a jet setter. So I want to take this to the leisure outlook for travel. Uh, have you ever done a cruise, Paul? No, no, no I have he's, not. Okay. But apparently the <laughs> rise in leisure activity is helping the cruise market. Is that is that correct? That is very correct. That is spot on. So, you know, people like to joke rising tides lift all boats. But here I would say it's true. You know, the cruise lines are the names that, I think there were a lot of people who sort of wrote them off for debt a few years ago. They've been this tremendous turnaround story, repaying their debt load, bringing, you know, improving their balance sheets, focusing on credit quality and, you know, ratings improvements. And and they've been saying all the right things. They've been trying to time the market as they can. Um, some have been a little bit more successful than others in terms of pricing. But that said, they're all committed to deleveraging into this year. And we're seeing that booking rates are also still pretty positive. Consumers are latching on to the narrative around cruises. And so I think it's still there's still a lot of momentum around the cruise industry, at least going into this year. Yeah, one of my clearest memories of the early days of the pandemic was the cruise companies mm-hmm. rushing out to the corporate bond market and because they knew probably better than anybody that their business was going to be shut down. They probably didn't know it would be <laughs> shut down for this long, but they needed the cash just to survive. So just take, for example, I'm looking at Royal Caribbean. They had, uh, at the end of 19, $11.7 billion of total debt. Uh, by the end of 2020, it was $20 billion of total debt. So wow. almost double their debt load as they kind of loaded up. Um, where's the leverage of this cruise industry? Where's, where is it now? Where are you guys in the credit space kind of think it should be? Right. So uh, where it should be <laughs> is always, you know, as a credit analyst, you say the lowest possible you can do while while being a good level of investment grade. Um, <laughs> so but but that said, outside of that, I mean, you know, if you look at a name like Royal Caribbean or like a Carnival. So Carnival, they had their peak debt level was about 35, 36 billion. They've now brought it down to below 31 billion. And so that's a tremendous, um, you know, sort of um cut into their debt load. And so 
it's less of an issue related to refinancing their debt to push out the maturities, more so actually bringing down the debt load because what they have currently is not sustainable, even with their large fleet. That said, you know, I, I think management is looking to get somewhere below 375, if I had to guess. The only reason why I say that is because that's where the Raiders have guided historically what it what they need to stay investment grade, both Royal and Carnival have communicated that they want to be investment grade Royal by 2025, Carnival by 2026. I, I think, you know, we've modeled out all scenarios where they could make it there. They could take a little longer to get there. I think it's really dependent on a few things. Number one, the fact that the consumer still has an appetite to go on cruises, but, but more so, you know, geopolitical risk, different sort of ways that there can be a monkey wrench in this whole process. And so provided they can still sort of maneuver these regional issues, such as Russia, you know, St. Petersburg was a big port. And then you had Tel Aviv, which was a big port in Haifa. Right. And so they had to sort of design around those situations and, and, are constantly adjusting. I mean, they adjust for weather all the time, but now yep. they're adjusting for weather and geopolitical risk. Jody, always a pleasure to speak with you. Jody Lurie, uh, credit analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. She follows the travel, the leisure, lodging, gaming, restaurants uh, from the fixed income perspective. She knows those industries backwards and forwards. So we love chatting with her. And again, that news that kind of jumped out at a lot of people this morning was Hertz to sell one third of their EV fleet in a shift back to gas powered cars. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.